Brad, Zuck. It's great to be up here this morning, and uh, it's great to see all of you. If you're a guest, as Jeff just said, we're so happy you're here and you've decided to, to spend a Sunday with us. Um, just a great week to be here. Uh, I'm excited to be the new Elkhorn Campus pastor, so we bought this new building. You don't have to clap, but we're really excited about this new, sort of our second church, our first multi-site building just south of Maple on 204th Street, and closed on that building in January, and so that'll be launching later this fall, have a lot of remodel to get going on that, but we're super pumped about it. Um, I got to tell you, in the four, week, four weeks after Easter, we're really going to be stepping into a, a special season, announcing just a lot of new things going on around here on the life of the church, other things that we're launching, not just the Elkhorn campus, but maybe especially that. And so you won't want to miss that after Easter. But man, yeah, two weeks and then Easter is, uh, is a big deal around here and we love it. So um, we've been working our way through James, as you just saw, and uh, almost to the end. So we're in the middle of chapter five today and the next week. We'll wrap up this series, taking us right up to Easter. Today we come to the topic of patience. Patience. And I don't know about you, but I think of my life and my family, aren't we all doing just pretty good on patience? Like, I've kind of nailed it, right? Like, oh man, with my kids? No, not really at all. Right? We, this is a hard thing. This is a great study for me this week. I'm going to read this passage. If you have a Bible, an app or whatever, uh, pull it out. I'd love for you to follow along. It'll be on the screens here too. James 5 starting at verse 7 through 11. James writes this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is God's word. And so we, uh, as we dive into this, boy, we live in a culture, contrary to what I've joked about. We live in a culture that does not value patience at all, right? It's almost a culture of impatience. When you think of some of the essential qualities of our culture, even just consumer capitalism, technological advances, great things, plenty of other areas, we are wired to be impatient in the 21st century, are we not? If a company designs a new smartphone and it's making billions of dollars and it powers up in five seconds, and another company comes along, and designs another phone, and it powers up in three seconds, well, that first company will be out of business before we know it, right? It'll go bankrupt. If a company can get something to you in four days, but another company comes along, namely Amazon, right, you beast of a company, and can get you something in two days, that first company will soon be out of business. Or at least Amazon will just take over the world, right? We live in a have-it-now, on-demand culture, a Netflix, Amazon Prime culture, do we not? Two-day shipping, somehow, someday soon, that'll be one-day shipping. You could just click a button, right, and it'll be at your door in no time. So we no longer have products like BlackBerry phones. Remember BlackBerry? Remember Palm Pilot? I remember being an intern here and Jeff Dart bringing down to me, I got this new device, it's called a Palm, and no more, right? No more blockbuster video because Netflix has changed the game. I just saw last week on the news, one, there's one blockbuster video left in this whole country, I don't remember where it is, Pennsylvania, one left. 
Radio Shack, right? Radio Shack used to be all the craze in the 80s and 90s and now no longer. In a sense, the economy cultivates impatience. It encourages impatience in us. And we almost punish anyone or any company or any product that can't give us that extra three seconds we so desperately need. This seems to me to be encouraged all the more if you live in the city or in a more urban environment like many of us do as opposed to a rural setting. Maybe some of you in here grew up on a farm. Maybe you still live on a farm. Are you from a small town like me? And uh, life there just was lived at a slower pace, was it not? At least it seemed to be. There was still work to get done on the farm, and certainly it would get done, but you just weren't as hurried. You didn't feel as rushed. And maybe that's purely because of the traffic, right? In the city, you just have traffic to deal with. Maybe that's all it comes down to. But, of course, the two most obvious examples of needing to exhibit patience could be guessed by any one of us, right? Beyond probably our parenting, because our kids try us and test us more than anything if we have young children at home, or maybe even our marriage, or a, a dog, or who knows, a professor if you're a college student. But I think on a practical level, what are the two most obvious things, right? It's well driving, number one. We just, like road rage is a default, and we can't help it, and we're trying to get someplace, and we got to get there now. And so we get frustrated on the road, right? Or in the grocery store. And so if you're like me, at, in any intersection you're coming up to, you start counting the cars, don't you, in the two lanes, and going, okay, when the light turns green, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the other lane because I'm going to get through this light before I have to wait again. Do you not do that? I do. Or at the grocery store, you start counting people in line at the grocery store to pick the checkout line aisle you're going to use because you just, we hate to wait, don't we? We live in a culture that doesn't value patience. But of course, all ancient cultures did. All ancient cultures valued patience. They said patience is a virtue. Think about the most patient person you know. Maybe it's your dad or your grandpa. Somehow it tends to be, maybe you get more patient as you get older, but it's people that just see, don't you, patience seems to bring about wisdom, doesn't it? Ancient cultures used to say impatient people, maybe they're shallow, they haven't taken the time to think through things. Impatient people are reckless. They make foolish decisions. They miss all sorts of opportunities. Isn't that true? And isn't it true that almost all of us have some memory of a time when we were impatient and it brought about some sort of negative consequence? Some hurt relationship. It was with our kids again. It was with our spouse. Think of the last time. Just think for a second right now. When was the last time you were impatient and maybe made a snap judgment? Who were you with? What did you say? And I guarantee you it probably brought about, it wasn't even all that important, was it? but it brought about some negative consequence. So, of course, patience is very important, although we live in a culture that doesn't value it. This passage from James is going to tell us how we can get patient this morning. James, as we've said throughout this whole series, was the biological brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This was years after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He ascended back into heaven, and he wrote this letter. We're nearing the end here, and he's exhorting us to be patient. So we're going to take a look at this passage. We're going to look at three headings this morning. What patience is, why it's so important, and then thirdly, how to develop it. What's at least one way to develop it? What patience is, why is it so important, and then how to develop it? So first, what is patience? Well, you'll notice this passage is basically two short paragraphs, and these two paragraphs each use a different Greek word for patience. 
They also each use a different illustration. So the first paragraph, as I read, verses 7 through 9, uses the illustration of a farmer. And farmers, as I already alluded to, farmers show patience. Why? Well, because they plant, and they don't expect harvest right away. Of course, the growth isn't immediate. They have to wait for the rains to come. In this culture, James specifically mentions the autumn and the spring rain. In this culture, and it is a very dry, arid region, they were absolutely dependent on these rains coming. So they had to wait for, what does it say? It says it has to wait, farmer has to wait for the land to yield its valuable crop. Farmers know what it's like to be patient. Now the Greek word for patient here in verse 7 and in verse 8 is the Greek word makrothumia, which literally means long-suffering. You've heard that before, right? Long-suffering. And an example of the opposite of long-suffering, an example of the lack of this kind of patience is immediately mentioned in verse 9, don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. I love this, that James never uses the word impatient. Maybe there wasn't a great Greek word for that. Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. Maybe he didn't have a word for that. So he uses the word grumble. Don't grumble. What is grumbling? Grumbling can happen verbally, but much of the time, it's an attitude of the heart. That grumbling is responding to people who disappoint you and frustrate you with resentment and negativity and cynicism. Now, why is that a failure of long-suffering? Why is grumbling a lack of patience? Well, here's why. Because grumbling means you've given up on people. Instead of loving them, instead of continuing to press into them, to care for them, you've given up on them. You've written them off. You've stopped pulling for them. Again, maybe just in your heart. Maybe you don't even show it on your face. See, many of us recognize it when we really hold a grudge or when we really hate somebody, right? There's been a falling out, a relationship's broken. We, that's kind of obvious, and it's much more external. But grumbling is something that's typically much more common and much more subtle and therefore much, much more dangerous. Because, see, grumbling means that the way a person has frustrated or disappointed you, you've just written them off. You no longer care. You've dismissed them. You've stopped caring. You're done with them. Listen, is there anybody who comes to your mind that when you see them out and about, when you're at the store or wherever, is there anybody who, when they come into your site, you go, ugh, (laughs) them, him, her, ugh. Seriously, you've just written them off. Why do you think that is? It's a serious lack of patience. And you know what it is? Because what's the opposite of love? It's not really just anger. If you're angry with somebody, you're still caring about how they're behaving or not behaving or you're caring about what they're doing. But indifference is the worst, right? Indifference is the true lack of love. That's why this is wrong. It's a serious lack of love. So what is patience? Patience is when people are frustrating you and disappointing you and annoying you, you don't give up on them. You forgive them and you're gracious with them, right? You suffer long with them. You you endure them. And it's more than just being stoic. It's still caring, right? That's what patience is. But that's not all patience is because that's just the first paragraph. The second aspect is found here in the second paragraph. It says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering... Take the prophets. Now, we're not exactly sure which prophets James is talking about here, but then he mentions one Old Testament character specifically. 
Verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. Here we have Job. And Job's problems were not so much about how he was being treated by people. Job's problems stemmed from the, how he was being treated by life and by God, right? He didn't experience difficult people so much as he experienced tragic, tragic circumstances. Tragic suffering. And so, you know the story of Job. There was a disaster that came and wiped out all of his wealth, his cattle, lives, all of his animals, gone. Another natural disaster wiped out all of his children. And then he got a terrible disease. In a very short amount of time, Job lost everything, right? He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his children. He's screaming and he's crying out to God. That's Job, right? And this kind of patience is shown by a different Greek word used here. And you'll notice the English translators reflect, reflect that it's a different Greek word by using a different English word for patience, a synonym, right? Perseverance. This Greek word isn't the same Greek word, macrothumia, which means long-suffering. This word for patience is hupomone. Hupomone, which means literally to hyperstand in place. To hyperstand. What does that mean? Well, it means to stand firm. Here's what I think it means. Imagine you're in the army and your commanding officer, you're in a battle, and you're, you're, the officer says, you stand right here, and you don't move an inch. You cannot retreat. You cannot give ground. I don't care what the enemy throws at you, how large they are, what they, however they come at you, you cannot move an inch, because if you do, all will be lost. The city will be lost. The army will be lost. Stand firm. Stand your ground. That's hupomone perseverance. When circumstances are terrible, when life goes wrong, when things are falling apart, here's what patience is. It's to unflinchingly live the way you ought to live and do the things you ought to do and be the person you ought to be anyway, right? Even when it's hard. And sometimes it's terribly hard. Job experienced tragic circumstances and he certainly cried out to God. He certainly, he had to learn patience. And yet he stood his ground, and in the end, James here says, he persevered. See what the Lord brought, finally brought about. So James shows us one aspect of patience is patience with difficult people. Another aspect of patience given here is patience with difficult or trying circumstances, suffering. Now, why is, why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal? Why does James make it such a big deal? See, at this point, even just at the common sense level, right, despite anything the Bible says, most people would be thinking, yes, patience is a good thing. I would like to become a more patient person and get rid of my impatience, but Brad, life's terribly hard, right? And you don't know what I'm going through, and, and this is really hard, but I'd love to be a more patient person. But here, I don't want you to miss this. James does not treat this as something that's just merely a practical, you know what, it's good for you. Be patient, it pays. No, James depicts this as a terrible evil in sin. Look with me at verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. He brings up judgment. The judge, capital J, is standing at the door. He says, we'll be condemned for our impatience. You go, gee whiz, what is the deal with this guy? Is impatience that bad? My impatience is off the charts. And I think James is saying, yes, it's incredibly, it's incredibly important and it's an incredibly big deal. Using the definition I just gave you, every single day, in fact, almost every hour, you're going to meet frustrating, 
disappointing and disillusioning people and circumstances. Every single day, some, you're going to get a flat tire, or someone's going to break in your house, or your roommate's going to tick you off, or your spouse, or your kids, you're like, come on, you're going to snap. Every single day, something is going to disappoint you or frustrate you. And when that happens, you have to respond in your heart. See, the battle takes place in your heart, and I'll get back to that. But again, James never uses the word impatience. He says, don't grumble. That's what you'll be judged for. So there's one of two ways you can respond. Everybody responds in one of two ways. You can respond by either trusting God or by trusting yourself. You can either trust God's timing, God's schedule, God's will for your life, or you can trust in your own assessment of things, your own schedule. You go, I can handle this on my own. What does trusting God look like? Number one, when you're trusting God, you've got to speak to yourself with the promises of God, right? You say, the Lord, he knows. I don't know. God, I never would have asked for this. But you're in control. I trust you. God, you're wise. You say, God, you're good. I don't know what you have going for me, God, but you see the big picture, and I trust you with this. You know I don't know. And you know what will happen if you speak to your heart like that? And is it hard in the moment? Yes, it's it's hard to think of it. There's been moments I've been in a fight or arguing with somebody, and I literally go, if Jesus loved me enough and he went to the cross for me, I've tried to literally think that in the moment of an argument. And go, you know what? If he would do that for me, that's the solution, right? You'll get calm. You'll get courage. You'll get peace. You'll get patience. That's number one. What does trusting yourself look like? Well, here's one thing. When bad things happen to us, we don't ever say, I think I'm just going to trust myself this time. God, I think I've got it. I, I'm just going to trust myself. No one says that. Here's what, here's what it sounds like when we trust ourselves. It sounds like, not again. It sounds like, are you kidding me? It sounds like, that's not fair. It sounds like, oh, no, you did not just do that. Oh, no, you, just, you did not just say that to me. That's what it sounds like. You go, uh, Brad, that, that's kind of my normal internal conversation. Yes, yes, it is. And mine too. We've trained ourselves throughout our lives to respond this way. What is that? Again, it's grumbling. And that's the default mode of our hearts. And if you give in to that, you know what happens? More and more, you will be eaten up with resentment, with anxiety, with self-pity, with cynicism, with restlessness, with, all, with, with heart attacks eventually, right? You see why this is so important? Every single day, you and I travel down a path one way or another, and we come to a fork in the road, and you can either trust God and his wisdom, or you can trust yourself and your own wisdom. Every single day. And here's the thing again. It's invisible. Look with me at verse 8. It says, you two be patient and stand firm. I'm using the NIV translation. It says stand firm. Literally, that phrase, if you're reading from, say, the ESV, English Standard Version, it literally says establish your heart. In other words, again, this is a battle in our hearts, you guys. This is internal. This is inside of us. And those little decisions every day are pushing you down deeper and deeper into more self-absorption or self-pity or, self or unhappiness with the things around you. And we become more self-centered and self-focused into what C.S. Lewis calls the hell of your own eternal autobiography. Constantly looking at yourself and thinking about yourself and maybe talking about yourself. You must establish your hearts. Why? 
Why? Here's why. Because, again, your heart is not on your side. Your heart's not neutral in this. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. I love this. Jeremiah just throws this in there. The heart is deceitful above all things, says Jeremiah. And beyond cure, who can understand it? Isn't that great advice, right? Trust your heart. Just, you know what you should do? You should trust your heart, except for this. Hearts are deceitful. The human heart is bent towards selfishness. And no one has depicted this destination of self-centeredness better than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is kind of a difficult read. Honestly, I refreshed myself this last week. It's about heaven and hell. And uh, it's a fictional book about a busload, from, a busload of people from hell who travel up to the outskirts of heaven. And there's these, these people from heaven come out, and they knew these other individuals on earth, their friends. And some went to hell, some went to heaven. And they come out, and these people from heaven try to invite them to come into heaven with them. Um, again, let me be clear, fictional book. I don't think C.S. Lewis actually thought that this was the way things happen by any means. Almost sounds like it's a purgatory kind of thing, but... In this book, the, the narrators are going around and they're commenting on these various cases, these conversations people are having. And I want to share with you one case that's just very, very interesting regarding this topic this morning. So one woman from hell comes out to meet with this friend of hers, and uh, she comes out and tries to invite her to heaven, but she never even hears the invitation because she never stops talking. It's kind of a longer quote, so it's not on the screens, but just listen here for a second. This woman says, oh, my dear I've had such a dreadful time, I don't even know how I got here at all. I was coming with Eleanor Stone, and we'd arranged the whole thing. We were to meet at the corner of Sink Street. I made it perfectly clear because I knew what she was like, and if I told her once, I told her a hundred times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful Marjorie Banks woman's house, not after the way she'd treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that had ever happened to me, and I'd been dying to tell you because I felt sure you'd tell me I'd acted rightly. No, 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 wait a moment, dear, I'm not, I'm, I'm not done. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all arranged. She was to do the cooking. I was to look after the house. And I did think I was going to be comfortable after all I'd been through, but she turned out to be so absolutely selfish, not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself, and she just keeps going and going. And eventually the two narrators, they're hearing this conversation, conversation and once the two ladies are, are gone, one of them turns to the other and says, says this, again, I quote, I'm troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has gotten into the habit of grumbling. See, there's, there's that word, grumbling. The answer came back from the teacher. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. He asked, but how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? And here's, here's what it all drives to, this quote. The answer came back, you've had this experience. It begins with a grumbling mood, but you yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it. You can still repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do so no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. That what if, I think Lewis is saying, what if we come to the end of our life but maybe the person we are toward the end of our life becomes the person who we are forever and ever, that our souls actually live on, like the Bible teaches. No longer a grumbler, just a grumble. You see what he's saying? The self-pity, the self-focus, the, the discontentment with life, 
It feeds on itself, doesn't it? Grumbling feeds on itself, and eventually you get to the place where you can't even see it or criticize it anymore. You can't even come out of it. Your heart and mine is, is already inclined in that direction, bent toward selfishness. And every single time bad things happen to you, there's two options. You can trust in yourself, or you can trust in God and his wisdom. And the trust in yourself is a path down to this, grumbling, on and on forever, like a machine, unless there's an intervention. So finally, what do we do about this? How do we get some help in developing patience, if it's that important? Here's what I want you to see this morning. I'm going to tell you just one simple thing you can do to develop patience. You develop patience in the present by looking to the past, right? Who's our illustration here? Who's, who do we look at in the past? Well, it's Job, right? We already talked about Job some. Job learned patience. Why? Well, because he suffered. And I must say, again, I'm only 36 years old, but from what I can tell, that's about the only way to learn patience. Is when something puts a strain on you, right? When something taxes you, when you, when you suffer, we all suffer in big ways and small. There's all different sorts of suffering, right? Many different things pull us, pull us down, cause tragic situations in our life. But that's the only real way that human character is forged. There is no courage without a trial. There is no growth in patience without some sort of suffering. If you want to see how patience is developed in present suffering, look at Psalm 77 sometime. I came across this psalm just this week in my own personal devotion time. It's not one of the more well-known psalms, but it's such an instructive psalm. The psalmist is looking at his life, and everything is sort of crashing down around him. There's all these problems he sees. But eventually he says, but I will meditate. He's freaking out. He's going, oh, my life's a mess. But eventually you get to verse 12, and he says, but I will meditate, God, on all your mighty deeds. I will remember your miracles of long ago. What is he doing? He's saying, yes, troubles are happening all around me, but I'm going to process them through prayer and meditation on God's word. I'm going to process them through prayer. That's one application. I'm going to take all of these troubles and worries and frustrations to God, and I will get patience. Now, in particular, what do we meditate on in God's word? I always go, I'm going to meditate on the cross. Because if you want to learn patience, yes, look at Job, absolutely. Job suffered. But if you really want to learn patience, look at the ultimate Job. Look at the one to whom Job points. Because Job was an innocent sufferer, right? But he wasn't perfect. He was still human. You even look at Job 1, and God says he's blameless and upright. He was better than most, and he suffered. So he, he, had a, he had a right to complain. Life wasn't fair for him. You might say he was a relatively innocent sufferer. He didn't deserve the life he had. But only Jesus Christ is the true Job. Because only Jesus Christ is the truly innocent sufferer. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus. Only Jesus was totally innocent. Only Jesus loved God the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And only Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Absolutely and totally. Jesus Christ deserved a great life, but instead, he got a terrible life. He was misunderstood. He was poor. He was rejected. He was betrayed and denied and abandoned by all of his disciples in the end, right? And finally, he was arrested and tortured 
in a brutal way. And then he was killed. He was nailed to a cross of wood as he was still alive. And then even his father abandoned him in his moment of need on the cross. But through all of that, through all of the agony and all of the pain, he was perfectly patient. See, Jesus is the true Job. He was the only truly innocent sufferer who really deserved a great life and got a terrible life. And throughout that whole time, throughout all of those things, he was absolutely patient. Why? You might say all the forces of darkness and evil and sin were coming down on him, and he stood his ground, right? Hupomone. He hyperstood. It's almost as if he knew we were all behind him, and he would not move an inch, and he knew if he did, all would be lost, right? So he stayed. He stood his ground. He said, not my will, God, but yours be done. Listen to that. That, that is patience. He was honest. He said, Lord, if it, if it could happen, let this cup pass from me. Yeah, again, not my will, yours be done. God, that's patience. Why did he do it? Why was he perfectly patient? Here's why. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, right, he died for our sins. He took the punishment that was to be on us, what our sins deserved. That's kind of the general way of putting it. But let me give it to you more specifically. Jesus Christ, through his perfect patience, atoned for our impatience so that the Father could be infinitely patient with us. To the end, through it all, even when we fail him, in the good and the bad, never, ever, ever letting us down or pulling back from us. You talk about long-suffering. Look at Jesus Christ. You talk about standing, hyper-standing. Look at Jesus Christ. Even when all the forces of darkness were coming down. And so we take that and we meditate on it. And we chew on it. And you say, he did that for me. Even for me, as impatient as I am. And so when troubles and frustrations happen to you, you take that. And what you can say is, if Jesus Christ was perfectly patient for me, even in the moment when his father abandons him, if he did that for me, then I can be a patient in any of these situations I'm in for him. Because why did he do it? Again, he did it for us. He was our substitute. He stood in our place, and he took the punishment that we deserved. If you see Jesus Christ saving you through his patience, intense, unbelievable suffering, that will make you into someone who can be patient. The struggle of patience and impatience every day is a battle for your heart and it's hard now. I get it. Some of us are in the middle of it. It's hard. It's difficult. If you want to have a happy life, though, if you want to have a great life with God, you need to learn to be patient. So how do we do that? We process through prayer. We meditate on the promises of the past. We look to the cross. We see Jesus atoning for our impatience. But then real quick, too, a second thing, we take joy in the promises of the future. And I'll just spend one line on that, but Twice in this passage, James says, because the Lord's coming. Why is that encouraging to us? The Lord's coming. He's coming soon. Be patient. Well, what does that mean? It means we know the end of the story, right? You ever know anybody who takes a novel and they just they read the end first? They always read the last chapter. They want to know. They can't stand the suspense. That's what we get in Scripture, right? We know the end of the story. Why does that matter? Because if Jesus is going to return someday and make wrong every or make right every wrong, and wipe away every tear from every eye, then even though it's difficult now, we can face it, can't we? Because we know the end of the story. And it's beautiful. And that'll melt our hearts. 
So what situation are you currently in the middle of? What's the fire you're going through right now in your job, in your family? Will you trust him today? Be patient. Let's pray. Father God, we need you in so many ways, God. And Father, you're more than our example. God, we can look to you and, man, Jesus, you're the ultimate example of being patient. But God, more than that, for us in this room that are believers, God, who've trusted in you, placed their faith in you, Lord, you've given us the Holy Spirit as well. And so we, God, we have the capacity to be patient. You've put it within us, God. We have the power to be patient. But God, sometimes we need refreshing on that, God. So we go to your word and we process through prayer and we look to the cross and we say, oh, Jesus, you, you, you did all of that for me. You know what, Lord? I think I can handle this little thing because you know what? You've got me. I think you've got me. And I can trust you for that and you'll get me through it. May we do that today. Lord, we, we cast it all on you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.